Hi, friends. That's what Scott Hanselman says whenever he starts a talk or a podcast. He's done over 650 episodes of his Hansel Minutes podcast that he calls Fresh Air for Developers. It's a tight 30-minute technology chat show that shares the same values that we do here at Greater Than Code. There's a huge library of guests for you to catch up on and a new high-quality show every Thursday afternoon with a fresh face you may not have seen on other shows. So go listen to it. Yeah. After you're done listening to this one, because this one's going to be great. Go listen in three, two, one, now. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of Greater Than Code. I'm your host, Sam Livingston Gray, and I'm also here with my doppelganger, Avdi Grimm. And I am Avdi Grimm, and I am here with Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Avdi, and I am thrilled to be here today with... Jean-Francois Cloutier, also known as JF, and I met him at Explore DDD conference, and I'm really excited to have JF here today. But first, the bio. JF is French-Canadian. He was born in Montreal the year the first spacecraft left Earth orbit. He has been an avid learner forever and ever, from first grade to third grade science books, and now he has read another interesting book that he's going to tell us about, but I'm not going to spoil that. Jeff is a bachelor's of science in physiology, and he was going to go to med school, but then he found programming and by med school, sorry. So he began the CompSci curriculum, and he took AI classes and found Minsky's Society of Mind. More on minds later. That's not a spoiler. Jeff has programmed in Fortran, in Lisp, and in Prologue, and small talk, a lot of small talk, because he was like into OO before OO was cool. He's a total OO hipster. He is so into OO that he's even written a collaboration IDE in Java after seven years of developing collaboration planning. But then he came across Erlang and the actor model and like actual OO, but that's my opinion. And then his wife financed a six-month sabbatical to learn Elixir. I think that may have involved robots. Because today we're going to talk about Elixir-powered robots that simulate human brain processing JF, tell us about your favorite cognitive model. Oh, it's called predictive processing, and it's uh, the uh, dominant theory right now in, uh, in, in neuroscience. And I, I came upon it uh, about you know uh, a year ago, uh, right after the previous Explore TDD conference. And it's absolutely fascinating. I will go, I'm sure, into more details uh, a bit later on. That's right, because we we skipped over our usual intro question. Oh, we're just late. By the way, I did not write a book nor do I plan to. So I don't want to disappoint anyone. That is very smart of you. That's on my anti-bucket list too. (laughs) (laughs) Some people want to write. Some people want to have written a book. You want never to have written a book. (laughs) I would be good with having written a book, but I know better. (laughs) Okay. So JF, what is your superpower? Uh, Well, that's kind of a difficult question because I don't think of myself as having superpowers so I, I knew you were going to ask this question. So I, I turned to someone who does have superpowers. I turned to my wife and I asked, Liz, what are my superpowers? And she immediately said, you see the forest before the trees. And I said, huh, that's interesting. And yeah, I, I guess I do have a pretty good sense of systems. I'm a systems thinker. I approach everything as a system embedded into other systems, embedded into systems. And I always try to intuit the emergent properties of 
any system I approach or, or, or any system I write as software. Software is always uh, a system. Uh, even the, the, most, the simplest uh, of software is embedded into a larger system, including the environment in which it's used. So I'm, I, I'll go with what uh, my wife says, which is always a good thing to do in a marriage, and say, yes, I believe that will be my superpower, systems thinking. I would just like to take a moment and point out that you have, in fact, two additional superpowers that I will draw attention to. The first is asking your wife things, and the second is listening for the answer. <laughs> Rare and powerful Jeff, do you have like some concrete examples of things that you have done differently based on your view of everything as a system within a system? This is something I'm working on right now. I have built this uh, Elixir-based uh, framework to do uh, REST service backends. And early on, I had a, a sense that this should be event-driven because I could anticipate that there would be more and more components that would plug in into the, this backend and I could see this developing into a, a system where various parts would complement other parts. So even though there was no immediate need for it, I pushed really hard and turned that into an event-driven system so that we would have those nice systems properties in, in that back-end framework. That's one example. The other example, of course, is uh, how I approached uh, programming my robots, which is entirely systems-driven, the design of it, yes. Ooh, ooh. So like you're picturing and envisioning the forest even while you're building the first tree? Yes. Uh, as I build a tree, I, I think of it as, as a tree in a forest uh, more than as a bunch of trees, which will eventually maybe by accumulation become a forest. It's hard to articulate, but I think it's really a matter of, of uh, being intuitive about the uh, unpredictable consequences of any or, uh, any design decision, because they they have ramifications, they have impacts. There's feedback loops everywhere. So where does intuition come from? <laughs> intuition is is cognitive processes that are inaccessible to representation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Is it a form of predictive processing? Everything can be boiled down, or at least involve predictive processing. But uh, I'm not smart enough to answer that question. I think that's another superpower right there. Hmm. Not knowing? Well, then I'm very powerful. Well, well, yeah, like, yeah, like accepting that you don't know something and like being okay with that. And being able to say it out loud? On a podcast? Oh, well, I guess I'm doomed now. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will employ me. <laughs> that's okay. You can lead our legion of super people. <laughs> so your robots, tell us about or the forest they live in. Hmm. Maybe if I could told you the origin story of how I came to do robots. Maybe so your robots. That. Tell us the origin story of your robots. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it uh, started maybe three years ago. I, I, I organized this uh, Erlang Elixir uh, meetup here in Portland, Maine. And uh, at one point I was like, okay, I need, I need some fresh material. I want to do something exciting. And I, I saw this uh, YouTube of the former CTO of, of Erlang Solutions, and, and he found a way of putting Elixir on uh, Lego EV3 robots. And he could program in Elixir uh, those robots. And I thought that was extremely cool. 
And I said, well, I, I want to do that, too. That would be great for, uh, you know, give me material for a number of meetups. So I, I purchased a, a Lego AV3 robot uh, kit. And by the way, it's the greatest toy in the world, bar none. It's just absolutely amazing. And uh, set up to, you know, control motors and, and read from sensors uh, from Elixir. And, and that was pretty straightforward. I make use of a, um, a release of, uh, of uh, Linux that's actually uh, augmented with drivers for the EV3. One thing that's it's, it's really important is that you can actually override the programming environment of the EV3 by, by inserting a microSD card from which it boots. You can boot Linux on your EV3. And if you can boot Linux and if you can uh, talk to command to controls controls and and and, and uh, actuators and sensors by essentially writing and reading files you can do anything you know from any programming language that will run on linux so once i figured that one out i went wow that's really cool so what am i going to do with this i'm just going to have the robot run in a circle i said no that's kind of boring and then i remembered from uh, uh the mid 80s when i was doing taking ai courses at, at McGill's, is I had come across uh, Minsky's uh, Society of Mind. And, I, and, and, and in a nutshell, it says basically the, uh, the mind is a, is a collection of simple agents, diverse, simple agents that interact in simple ways. And from these interactions emerge apparently what appear to be intelligent behaviors. And I said, wow, multiple agents, Elixir, which is a concurrency-oriented programming language, match made in heaven. I got to do something with my robots and 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 create this society of mind. So that's that's what I set out to do. Oh, so society of mind is like society within the mind. Yes, exactly. Have you seen the uh, Pixar movie? Uh, that, uh, oh, Inside Out. Inside Out. That's it. Well, that is a simple representation of a society of mind. You have fear. You have anger. You have. What what else is there? There's there's, there's joy, disgust, disgust, all these things. Yes, and and they're kind of battling it out, and out of what comes out of this 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 battle between these agents comes the behavior of that of that little girl. So that's a very simple um, cartoonish view of the society of mind, but uh, I think a, a fun one. So yes, that's what a society of mind would be: a bunch of agents, and they interact, and out of these interactions come out apparently uh intelligent behaviors so one at one level that could be like a neuron is an agent but i suspect that would be rather too many Hmm. what are the agents in your robots well the the, my first implementation which is not the one that you would see in in my uh uh, most recent uh, explore ddd presentation uh was an intuitive model of the mind i just like sat down and and just came up with what i thought might be a, a working a cognitive model I had perception, which uh, is what the robot sees, and then those those perceptions build on other perceptions. So you you perceive that you're close to a wall, but then you also remember that uh, you were further away just recently. So you have a higher level perception that says I'm getting closer to the wall. So hierarchies of perceptions. I had motivations. What do I want to do now? If I'm uh, am I hungry? Am I curious? Am I uh, fearful? They might represent uh, emotions, and, and emotions will select different behaviors, and those behaviors were finite state machines. So how do I go about finding food if I'm hungry? And if I'm hungry, then my motivation to be curious is shut shut down. 
it's inhibited because there's something more important. And if I'm afraid, my hunger goes away. So there's kind of a hierarchy of, of emotions, which kind of was inspired from Rodney Brooks' uh, robots, which are layers of, of, of behaviors that inhibit other uh, behaviors. So that was, in, in a nutshell, what I had. And, and, and there was a, a memory in there. There's also uh, an, an agent for attention so that certain perceptions uh, may not matter in the moment. So you shut down those detectors and, and so forth and so on. And all these agents are firing all at the same time. They're all uh, interacting through events. So it's all event-driven. So imagine like uh, dozens of these agents just like doing their things, inhibiting others, sending events, listening to other uh, to events coming from other agents. And, and somehow that little robot would actually move around, find a source of food, which was indicated by a, a beacon. So looking for that beacon and the source of food would be a, a, a sheet of paper on the floor of certain colors. So it would detect it's over the car, it starts eating. All these behaviors, it, it looked pretty good. It, it looked like the, the, the little critter was actually... Um, truly autonomous and, and, and uh, purposeful, which is what I was after. So that's, that's what I did, and that led to a, led to a number of, of meetups, and, and, and eventually I presented uh, the result of that first cognitive model uh, at uh, Elixir Days over uh, two years. So that, that, that gave me a lot of material, and that's why I started on uh, programming robots. And of course, it's just glorious fun, though so I just kept going. But you said that was your first model. Uh-huh. Your first a- a- approach. So, what changed and why? Uh, at the Explore DDD conference in 2017, I presented my uh, initial model as an example of a domain-driven uh, design as a as a DDD endeavor, you know, a, a DDD-rich project, and showed it and went very well. And at, at the Q and A session, my, my good friend uh, Bruno Ricard. Uh, stood up and said, I have a question for you. I said, yes. He said, do your robots learn? And how would you go about having them learn? And I went, ah, uh, uh, neural networks, uh, machine learning. I was totally mealy-mouthed. I had no idea. None that is whatsoever. the best <laughs> kind of question. <laughs> totally threw me for a loop. So I kind of messed up uh, a nonsense answer and, and, and just stuck with me. I went, Man, this is really, really annoying. I'm, I have this cognitive model that I built, and there's no room in it for learning. What kind of a mo- cognitive model is that? I mean, learning is just basic. It's 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 a core uh, capability of, of of a cognitive system. So uh, for a, about a couple of months, I was just like, there must be a way. There must be a way, and I I really didn't quite know. Then, as luck would have it. On my Twitter stream, I saw a reference to uh, a blog called the uh, the Brains Blog, and on an article about predictive processing, more specifically a, a book by uh, Andy Clark called uh, Surfing Uncertainty. And just a summary of, of the book and, and then the, the, the concepts behind predictive processing made it very clear that, well, learning is built in, it's core to this, this theory. And I went, oh my God, this might just be the ticket for me. So uh, this this might be how I, I get out of my dead end and and come up with a cognitive model that for once for one would not be like my own homebrew cognitive model will be based on on the the, the latest and, and, and greatest uh, developments in, in cognitive uh, and neuroscience. So I bought the book, read it 
twice, slowly. It's an amazing book, but man, is it dense. I totally read the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) How did it go for you? Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the introduction, totally approachable. (laughs) It gets better. Let's go through the book. I read the cover. (laughs) 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 Making me jealous, Abdi. (laughs) How do you find the time? (laughs) Well, here's my trick. I like not working. As much as I enjoy programming, I enjoy not being in the mindset of a programmer. I enjoy being contemplative. I enjoy thinking large instead of thinking uh, logically and, and somewhat narrowly, as you, as you must when you, when you code. So I need something to motivate me to do uh, extracurricular coding. And the way I, I you know, get myself to do it is I submit a proposal to a conference and present it as if it's work already done. <laughs> and then it gets accepted and now I'm on the hook. Conference-driven development. Conference. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's how. I have totally done this as well. <laughs> how did this new, this new approach to robotics work out? It worked out pretty well. I mean, uh, I my goal was to... Uh, recreate basically the same behaviors that I had with the prior cognitive model, but with a completely new model with some aspects of learning built in so that the the behaviors could improve over time through practice as the robot discovers what works and what doesn't. And long story short, I I got some interesting results. I recreated the behaviors and I I could see improvements in in the robot's uh, abilities. What's an example? How effectively does it find its way to the food, given various stimulations like uh, uh, obstacles and, and, and distractions, like being in a dark spot, which makes it fearful? Does its behavior look random or does it look purposeful? In, in the first uh, implementation, everything was kind of not exactly hard-coded, but there was very little... Uh, variability. I mean, behavior was the, described as a finite state machine, and finite state machine is a finite state machine. In, in the case of the, 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 the new implementation, it was based on predictive processing, which, and we might want to go a little bit in, uh, into it uh, somewhat uh, a bit later, but it, it's all about making predictions as to what you're about to perceive, finding out whether or not those predictions are true. If they're not, then initiating actions so that the next round of uh, sensations fit your predictions. And so it's about like a, in the world of predicting processing, the brain and nervous system's principal task is to predict what it's about to perceive. And if the predictions are correct, imagine the predictions going down, meeting the wave of perceptions going, coming up. And if the predictions are correct, that's it. No more. We don't worry about it. But if, if there's a prediction error, the predictions bubble up. And whatever made those predictions sees those errors and say, oh, I need to do a better job on the next cycle to better predict the, the, the sensations that are always coming in, you know, wave after wave after wave. So it's, it's this constant attempt to predict what I'm going to perceive and, and having some of the predictions work, as many as possible, hopefully, some fail, prediction errors 
bubble up, that's what you actually become aware of. That's what actually gets perceived. At the same time, your generative models, what in your brain creates those predictions, learns from, from its errors so that it predicts better. So that learning is, is core to this uh, very uh, process. It's, it's really interesting. The behavior of the robot is about removing prediction errors. So it's not a finite state machine just doing this, then that, then that. It's like the robot is making a series of predictions. Those predictions are, are verified or not. They're not verified. Then there's compensation. Uh, the, the, the robot will act, will do things in order to correct those errors, to, to make those errors disappear. So it's a very, very different uh, way of looking at behavior. So prediction errors, there's a kind of a conservation of attention thing going on here. Right, where as long as we're right, we don't notice anything. Correct. And then when we're wrong, there's like there's two things going on. There's one, sometimes we change our prediction, but you also mentioned we take action to make our predictions true. Yes. And that's really freaky. For example, <laughs> if if imagine you, you're about to grab your cup of coffee. What happens is that you generate the predictions that you are feeling what you expect to feel when grabbing that cup of coffee, but you haven't moved yet, right? You haven't moved yet. So you're not feeling that cup of coffee in your hand. And so there's prediction errors that are firing. And then your motor cortex says, let me correct that and, and move my hand so that it feels the cup of coffee. So you, your movement, your, your body's movements are actually, what you're doing is you're fulfilling prophecies, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a self-fulfillment of prophecies. Story of humanity. Yes. My, my robot moves. That's exactly what it does. It says, I predict that I'm, I'm, I'm over food. I'm not over food. What can I do to make that prediction come true? And it will do some, 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 uh, it will be given a, a series of, of options on how to move. It will pick one and actuate, move. And if for some reason, that gets it over the food. Then the prediction is fulfilled, and the robot remem remembers, when I try to be over the food, it works well when I do this versus that. And it, it kind of, over time, finds out that for correcting certain prediction errors, these actions work better than others. It will favor these actions, which means that over time, the robot will pick the right action option to... Uh, uh, make a prediction error go away, and it would do better and better and better over time. Now, my model is extremely simplistic, and it seems to work, but it's, I can do so much more, which I intend to do. What conference have you submitted to in, well, in order to drive you to, to actually do the, the more work? I, I like the number three, right? That's, uh, I, I mean, in, in terms of drama, three is great, you know. First, you present something that looks really good, but then it doesn't quite work. So number two, you try to, you try to compensate and you go only so far. And then three is triumph. You, you, you succeed beyond wild expectations. So I'm hoping that's going to happen. So I'm going to be presenting at Explore DDD for a, a third time so that I have a, a, an arc, a nice Sweet. arc. Yeah, I need to submit to that conference this year, too. It was fantastic. So are you predicting seeing yourself presenting at this conference and then generating actions to get yourself there? <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. So 
Oh, yes, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I can feel it, but it's I'm not there yet. So yes, I will I will make the corrective actions. And this is a fascinating model, but my first thought uh, when you started talking about this, like, I, and I even put this in the side chat about comedy and stage magic, and these these are things that humans do to entertain other humans by messing with their predictive models. Yes, and we like it. Yes. <laughs> so when do you get to tell jokes to your robots? It's called magic, right? That's what great magicians do. They mess with uh, your 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 predictive processing. Absolutely. As I was watching your talk, I mean, you, you, your explanation of predictive processing is great there. And it was completely baking my noodle. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it's very consistent with some of the other, this other stuff I've seen about neuroscience where it's like, if there's one truth, truth of neuroscience, it's that the brain is incredibly lazy. And so like this kind of slots into that where it's like, if the brain can figure out a way of like not doing work, I feel like we mostly imagine that our brain is taking in all these inputs in and then building a model around it. But that would involve constant work. And so what you're, it sounds like what you're saying is that actually the brain is just sort of imagining the world. And then anytime that the world, the, the, the physical world actually collides with the imagination, then it actually, it has to do some correction. And otherwise it sort of proceeds blithely along at, at low energy levels. The interesting thing that this makes me think about, uh, and kind of with regard to software, is that like I feel like, you know, all the the software thinking that I've encountered has been guided by this idea of that like humans are building a model of this world and based on their inputs, and so our software should contain a model of the world and adjust, you know, and constantly updated based on its inputs. That thinking guides a lot of the way that we model things for software. But what you're saying is that that is not really how humans – there's a difference between having a model that's constantly updated, like constantly scanning and constantly updating a model based on that versus a generative model, which is occasionally adjusted. And that does that have implications for how we approach software as well? The general question is maybe hard to answer, but in the specific – Yes, the the story is one of frugality. I'm I'm I prefer frugality to laziness because frugality is smart, lazy is just you know lazy. But uh, oh, so you've studied marketing? We're all embedded in the system. So if, if there's this notion of uh, the the concept of predictive coding processing, but predictive uh, coding more specifically is used to do uh, video encoding. So if you can if you can uh, predict the next frame based on the previous frames, then you only need to encode what were your prediction errors, right? And and you you can be very um, not very smart about it and just take a static approach and say I, I predict that the next frame will be exactly like the previous frame, and you only encode the differences. That's MPEG. Right, but if you have if you're smarter, say you have a video where things are panning in the background, you can predict the next frame. The background will be shifted a little bit left, and you may have predicted it correctly. In which case, you're good, even though the, the whole frame has changed since you've predicted the panning. Maybe all you're capturing is the fact that the the horse has has raised its paw a little bit more from the previous, and that's all you're encoding. So you can do some really serious um, uh, compression using predictive coding. And that's uh, analogous to what the, the, the nervous system does is by improving 
its prediction of the incoming sensory flow, it need only concern itself where it, the, the, the sensory flow de deviates from uh, the predictions. And going back to your notion of, of uh, representation, as a, uh, we don't represent the, the, the world in our head um, the way um, AI thought we did in the early days of robotics. Uh, if you remember the, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Minsky's one early, one of early uh, pro the early projects from uh, uh, Marvin Minsky was to build a robot called Shaky, and Shaky had a, a video camera, and it would build a, a, a an actual model of the space around it, blocks and cubes and where they are and whatnot. Then it would build a plan according to this model, and and then execute that plan. But the the loop was so heavy it was so expensive to build that model and then of course that model would would, would be invalidated uh as the the robot moved and then needed to rebuild that model to, again that the poor thing would would move like a few inches uh a minute and, and in the beginning they thought this project would be like a summer project and ended up being a multi-years project and it, it was never really satisfactory I think it's quite clear that we do not have the, the notion that we're representing the world, I mean, in terms of uh, logical statements, right, logical assertions in our brain. That does not pan out. That is not how, how, how it works. But it's really interesting if, if you, you mentioned generative model. Let's just uh, explain a bit more clear what a generative model is, a model of something that can generate instances of it, not just recognize, not just classify, but actually uh, generate instances of it, Okay. So imagine now we've grown, we're adults, we've developed this really sophisticated, multi-layered set of generative models. Then we're tired, we close our eyes, we go to sleep. What happens? Those models are still running and we're dreaming, right? And it feels real because why wouldn't it? It's the same as when we're awake, except we don't have our senses telling us that uh, our model is, is off a little bit or not. So that's why when we dream, it feels very real, but suddenly we start flying and that feels real, real. But in real life, we could not feel ourselves flying because we feel our feet on the ground unless there's a disturbance in, in the balance between predictions and uh, sensations. If your predictions are too strong and they, they don't really, they're not annihilated or, or, or um, by the sensations, and, and your predictions kind of overwhelm the sensations, right? Then you start hallucinating because reality is not strong enough to tell your predictions, no, you're wrong. Here's what's really going on. So this imbalance between your predictions and your sensations, if the imbalance is too great, then you might be suffering from schizophrenia because your predictions are too strong. If the reverse happens, if your sensations uh, are too strong and your correct predictions cannot cancel the sensations, all sensations go through as prediction errors, even though they shouldn't, then your brain is overwhelmed with everything is new all the time. Everything is surprising all the time. I might explain some aspects of autism. So well, this is really, really interesting. I thought of an example of being overwhelmed by prediction errors. And other people not being, because like these days, I'm, I'm going to reveal my age here, that you see a lot of videos where like every half a second is changing to something different. In the, isn't that painful? 
we're all 40 here or close enough. Um, <laughs> but yet the kids are totally fine with it. They have like a prediction that, oh, yeah, the video is going to change every half second. No bother. And I'm like, no, no, it should not be changing. Right. Oh, yeah. It, it drives me completely nuts. It drives me completely nuts. Because- I'm going to show you some TikTok videos later. Oh, and at the same time, like if you try to go back and watch a TV show or a movie that was shot in the 80s, for example, it's so slow now. I remember loving those things. And then I go back and I'm like, okay, can we get there yet? So our, my model at least has changed. But, you know, my expectations have changed about, you know, the pace of things. Um, and so my model has adjusted to that over time. And it's interesting to sort of go back and recalibrate. Yeah, it's about calibration. It's about calibration of attention. If you spend a lot of attention to detail, then um, you're, you're, you make more precise predictions so there will be a possibility for greater number of prediction errors. So you can calibrate. And I think when you watch one of those videos where, or, or ads where the, the image changes every two seconds, you essentially calibrate down your, your, your attention. You, you, you don't pay attention to the, the details. So you're not overwhelmed by uh, the changes because you're not predicting much. So there's not that many prediction errors flooding in. So we, we kind of become uh, detached. So this, I think there's the same amount of stimulation, but we don't pay attention. So they feed us more and more and more and more changes, and we pay even less attention. And I don't think that's a good thing. It's an arms race of sorts. How well can we ignore them? <laughs> so um, this is a bit of a change, but I can't help but ask a little bit about this because th- this is like from one OO dork to another. <laughs> you know, I was looking at your bio. I've also had a long, long history of thinking about object orientation. And like I realized recently that that literally got my first job because of thinking about OOS. I basically just said polymorphism a lot and they were and they were very impressed by that. <laughs> and like I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And I've also come to a very similar conclusion uh, to you that, you know, probably the stuff that's going on in Erlang and Elixir is, is about the closest we've ever come to the, the actual um, object-oriented uh, model. But the thing that I have a hard time putting words to, especially as I go on and I look at other programming systems, and I wonder if you have some insight into why does OO matter? Why does that point of view even matter? Do you have a thought on that? When I first encountered OO, which was, and I'm going to, age myself ridiculously, which is in the, in the mid-80s, early 80s, actually, when Small Talk came out. I was very excited because it felt like a very conceptual way of, of, of programming. I mean, I, I could implement concepts, and, 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 and it felt very, very uh, friendly to me. But where I think it started uh, going wrong is that we tend to fall into ontological traps when, when we do object-oriented programming. We look for a classification tree, a, a, a beautiful conceptual tree of the code we're writing, classes and subclasses and sub-subclasses, so that we have beautiful polymorphism and all that, and, and, and inheritance of code. And then you, you hit an, a feature request, and it completely demolishes the assumptions that are what's variant and what, what's invariant in your beautiful, polished ontology. And then you start, you know, putting square pegs into wrong hole, uh, round holes and making uh, weird subclasses that override too much. 
and 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 eventually uh, it turns into a um, a monster, right? Something that that doesn't doesn't have that nice logical uh, structure that you had before. You need to explain what you did with lots of buts and ifs and exceptions. But in this case, but in that case, and 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 I, I think that has been the danger of inheritance specifically in object-oriented programming is that it, it's very easy to go down an ontological, ontological path that becomes a dead end a little bit too far when it's too late to rethink your ontology to completely uh, reorganize it. Because at that point, I don't think it's plastic anymore. I think inheritance is essentially cement that you've poured into the veins of your software. Did you say that inheritance is essentially cement that you pour into the veins of your software? It can be, and it, 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 and it is pretty quickly. Yes, unfortunately, yes. That's very quotable. Thank you. But OO is all about inheritance, right? But no, that's, that's, that's very, very nice, very nice. Uh, and, and that's why uh, uh, Jess and Avdi said that maybe uh, the actor model is what OO object-oriented uh, programming ought to be. And that seems to be what Alan Kay, who uh, one of the key, one of the inventors of Smalltalk, has been saying for a while that he said, really, it should not have been called object-oriented programming. It should have been called message-oriented programming with the emphasis on individual actors exchanging messages and, 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 and thus engaging into conversations but not with the notion of, 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 of inheritance necessarily. I, I think the, the messaging is key. The inheritance is seductive, but dangerous. And, and one thing I've, I've not answered that question yet is, as I made the, the move to uh, Elixir, which is actor model with functional programming, after doing you know, a decade or more of Java programming, I was happily writing code in Elixir, and then I stopped and said, why am I not missing what I had in, in Java? Why am I not missing inheritance? I'm, 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 I'm hobbled because I don't have it. I don't feel like I'm, I'm deprived. Then why is that? And I, I'm, I'm trying to really answer that question. Is that In fact, I, I realized that I don't need it. It does not matter. I don't miss it at all. I'm very happy. I can, I can tackle tremendous complexity by defining simple data structures and defining transformations on these data structures and defining actors, agents, that have a simple state and have clear purpose and, and simple interactions with other actors. And I find that this is entirely sufficient to build complex systems. As a matter of fact, it makes building complex system that much easier. I find it liberating. So I don't miss object oriented programming. And if when I have to go back to it, I'll slip into that mode of thinking. And I'm careful about you know, not overdoing my ontologies, not, not creating complex inheritance trees for the sake of a little bit of reuse. I'll keep very flat hierarchies, but when I come back from it and back into uh, functional programming with the actor model, I feel like I don't miss anything. 
So that was a surprise to me when I got into um, um, the world of uh, Elixir, that I would not miss object-oriented programming at all. Not a bit of it. None. Now, do you ever find that as you as you separate the agents more completely, because that's one of the things that, you know, Elixir versus traditional you know, Java or whatever, OO, you're really separating the, the agents that are messaging each other. Like, do you ever, do you find that you start running into cases that are difficult to reason about because the, the case is all tied up in a series of messages that go, that pass through a series of agents and like tracing back the, the interactions between them? Is that, has that become a, an issue or not? I expected early on that it would be, but it hasn't. Interesting. See, the, the, here's the thing. When we, you know, in the old days of procedural programming, it would go to, uh, when you're debugging, you, you ask yourself, how the hell did I get here at this line of code? And how did I get here? When we do object-oriented programming, you would be like, how the hell did I get to this state? And, and it would be a very complex thing to unravel. But with functional programming, you're, you're not anywhere. It's just simple transformations. As long as the inputs are the same, you can expect the output to be the same. So there's no getting lost somewhere when you're doing functional programming. You don't, you don't. But when you have actors, they, their state tends to be very simple. And I haven't found myself getting lost yet because the, uh, the communications between actors is through immutable data structures. And... Once you understand that the, 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 when you send messages to a, an actor, these are immutable data structures. They tend to be simple ones as well. And they are processed in order by the actor as it, as it scans its mailbox. So there's a very simple model of how the actor processes its, its messages. So that, that does not make things complicated. And when I program my robots... There are a lot of agents, and they're fired, and, 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 and there, there's a lot of concurrency. And one would expect that, and different kinds of agents, different kinds of interactions, one would expect that I would get lost. But I didn't. I didn't. Because it was easy to reason about what happens when a given agent receives a given message. In, in isolation, it's, it's a very simple, it's very, it's very straightforward to reason what's going to happen, what, what, what will be the, the, the change of state of that actor. And since the change of state is isolated to that actor, and it, an actor cannot change the state of another actor without sending messages, this simple model makes it actually quite straightforward to reason about the behavior of the, of the system. Now, if your system has emergent properties, that's inherently difficult. You mentioned uh, at the beginning that you're particularly good at seeing the emergent properties. Intuiting them, maybe. They're always surprising. That's, that's the nature of a complex system. And do your that, robots have emergent properties? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're behaviors. Kind of right? Yeah, yeah their very behaviors are emergent properties. I can't predict how my robot's going to behave because uh, not only are, is it the result of emergent properties, but there's learning involved. So it learns, it, it knows how to, uh, which actions tend to correct prediction errors better than others statistically. Um, so I can't predict that either. But I could ensure that the 
whole interactions between the agents made sense. Okay, so here's a question based on that. Mm-hmm. If the robot does something uh, that's not you know emergent, unexpected, and clearly antithetical to working the way you want your robot to work, do you try to figure out all of the 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 state that led up to you know all of the message interactions that led up to that happening, or do you fiddle with things uh, until it, it it seems to get it right? You fiddle with things because that's the nature of a complex system. Nice. If, when, when when you when you touch it, you cannot predict how it's going to react completely. So that's where intuition comes in and experimentation. Yeah, I feel like this is this is very different from how we're traditionally taught to operate as programmers. Yes, well, that's that's when, when you create a complex system, you essentially make a bit of a deal with the devil. Think of the uh, Wall Street market. You know, nobody understands how it works. It's become complex enough with a sufficient number of feedback loops that if you if you make or, or the economy as as a whole, if you uh, change interest rate, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You, you you may say in in the past when we made this kind of adjustment, we got these general properties to move in these general directions. But when a system becomes sufficiently complex, you cannot reason in details between cause and effect. You experiment, and maybe uh, if you do the same thing twice, you get a different result. It's, it's a possibility. But that's already the case in, in, in everyday programming, right? Uh, uh, fixing a bug. In real life, yeah. In real life. When you fix a bug and a system is sufficiently complex and has a lot of side effects, so feedback loops, um, you make a fix here, you break something, you break five things over there that you didn't even know existed. So we're already there. Yeah, there's been forever this move towards strive to simplicity. We want to be able to reason about our programs all the way through, not just in the small. And the the fact is, that's great. Get that where you can. Fantastic. But hello, that's never going to be sufficient. Because our programs are dealing with input that comes from humans, and humans are just messy. Ah, There's that. And then when your software reaches a certain uh, level of complexity, cause and effect are no longer traceable. Um, and, and worse, uh, with uh, all this uh, deep uh, learning uh, so, uh, software being used more, we have absolutely no clue. We can't trace how an input leads to an output. It's opaque. Bias laundering. I, I feel like this is kind of validating to the sort of beginner's mind approach to programming. Because when you're a beginner, especially if you get into it you know, from a non-traditional angle, so you're not going through like a computer science curriculum. You know, you fiddle with things. You don't know what's going to what's gonna make it work. You fiddle with things kind of randomly. I think in computer science, we kind of denigrate that approach. And this this is a validation of that, saying that at some, at some level, you're just going to get bogged down trying to backtrack a problem all the way to root causes. Yes. Actually, it's, you said the word backtrack. It reminded me when I was doing some prologue. Right. Uh, in prologue, you, you describe the problem with logical rules and, 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 and logical assertions. And then if you write your program, well, you ask your, your program to, let's say, find a solution to, let's say, a Sudoku problem. And you've basically programmed the rules of Sudoku. And, and my, my first shock was I would write a program that absolutely works, 
not complicated, 20 lines, they come up with solutions I hadn't thought about. So I was writing programs that apparently were very simple, but surprised me. So I, I think the notion of that programs can be surprising uh, starts with even very simple ones. But of course, when you get into very complex systems, then surprise is the order of the day. Yeah. You mentioned um, enjoying being not in the mindset of a programmer, thinking in the large. And yet when we're doing this, this, this poking, um, Mary Poppendick calls it, or this fiddling and then experimenting to see what happens in the complex system, we're not in that super logical specific space. That a programmer, yes, we need to be able to go there. But if we yeah. try to live there all the time, I, I don't know. The, we're really limiting the jobs we can do. Yeah, we, we can be very narrow, uh, logical, everything predictable in the small. And we must be, of course. You know, otherwise, we're incompetent, right? But uh, when we get in, in, in the large, then that's when intuition comes in. And, and that's when uh, I, I do my best work in the shower, you know, you're in the shower, water is flowing, and then you just open up your mind, and then suddenly, oh, you have an idea. You don't know where it came from. And by the time you're done rinsing yourself, you're a different person than you were when you entered the shower because now you've seen something. Your intuition has opened up your mind something. And then, you, you, of course, you, you dry up and as fast as possible. You go down and, 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 and try what you, you just imagined. But at some point, intuition is a key skill. <laughs> and how do we get that? I mean, I think... Do we just do stuff more? Yes, read, do, take showers. <laughs> Practice and reflection. It's a good sign when you come up with solutions in your sleep. Your intuition is, 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 is working beneath the harness of consciousness and, 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 and directed thought. I come up with solutions in my sleep all the time. I would be amazed if one of them ever worked. <laughs> <laughs> but my sleep I, I, predictions are not that good. I, I think we're, we're, we're smarter in our sleep than we're awake sometimes. I, I have dreams where I compose music and I, I wake up and it's pretty good. Darn if I could do that when I'm awake. Because when, <laughs> when I'm awake, I know I can't do this. When I'm sleeping, uh-huh. for some reason... I forget that I don't, I'm not capable of doing something and then I do it, but it's not always, you know, I I, I wouldn't. uh, That's beautiful. Now there's, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy for you. I can't do this. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You're always right when you say that. That's true. Yeah. Because we're making predictions and making them true. And that is always one that you could make true for yourself. Unfortunately, the inverse is Dunning-Kruger. So, you know, I can do this. Wait, no, you really can't. Yes, I can. (laughs) That's true. That's true. That, and and, and that the, the uh, counteraction to that Dunning-Kruger is if you can notice the prediction error of, no, actually, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to your podcast while I do the dishes. That's when I listen to podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm on dish duty all the, every day here at, at home. And I don't mind because it's my podcast time. <laughs> and, and I remember uh, in a previous podcast, we were talking about Beer, what's his name? A systems. systems oh, Stafford guy. Beer? Yes, Stafford Beer. And he came up with this systemic view of you know, adaptive system and applying them to organization. And I've just started thinking, what would happen if we applied the insights of 
predictive processing to uh, organizations as systems. Uh, just, just a thought. I haven't thought deeply about that, but it seems that this, this strategy of predictive processing has been adopted wildly in, in, in the living world and is very successful. There must be reasons for why it's very successful. And those reasons might be generalized to um, uh, the world of organizations. We tend to see organizations as living systems, right? So what would it mean to uh, apply the, the principles of predictive processing to organizations, human organizations? I don't know. It's a question. Well, would it be we come up with a one-year plan and then we make it happen? <sighs> yes. Well, that's like I, oh, you're walking really fast in a crowded place. You open your eyes every one hour. so that gets into the octopus bit Mm. the predictive processing doesn't just take place centrally in your brain it takes place in your eyes right yes yes exactly i mean there are cells just back of the retina that predict which pigment is going to be stimulated next and if that's correct then the the prediction is is fulfilled there's there's, there's no uh there's no uh neural traffic coming out but if it's wrong, then, of course, there's neural traffic. So, yes, the, the, the predictive processing is not centralized in the brain. It's distributed throughout the nervous system. And also, in and of itself, it, it, it is fractal. It is, uh, you make large predictions and then smaller predictions and then even smaller predictions. And, and your, your generative models are organized in, in, in fractally as well. You know, you, you have very spe- specialized generative models and you have higher-level generative models short-term ones, predicting how it's going to feel to open my hand, and long-term ones, which are, um, is this person going to smile after I say this joke? All right, so it's fractal both in in terms of of scope, but in terms of uh, spatial scope, time scope, in terms of the domain itself that that it it tries to um, predict in terms of the sensations uh, that it will generate for us, I mean, I'm not sure that's very well stated, but yes. Well, so you, you're talking about fractals makes me want to try to unpack that just a little bit. Um, so an example might be if you're reading a book, right? You're mm-hmm. looking at a page and you're seeing patterns of light and dark on on the page and elements of your visual cortex are seeing like a line and then a curve next to the line. And they're saying, well, that's that's not necessarily this pattern of pixels. It's a line. And then it's next to this other pattern of pixels. And then something up above that says, oh, those two things together, that's a D. And then... Something up above that sees uh, several different uh, letter patterns together and says, oh, that's a word. And then you read those words and you're building a sentence. And as you read and understand the sentence, you're putting it in context of the, the narrative that you're reading as you read the book and so on. Yes, yeah, so that's why finding a missing semicolon in our code is so hard. Or a, a typo, noticing a typo is so hard because we don't read letter by letter. We, we have expectations that this word is going to be the name of our variable, but instead of an I, it's an L, or it's missing a letter, but we don't see it because our expectations... Oh, so the predictive errors for that are at like the scale of, of a letter or, yeah. or a pixel or something, whereas the expectations of what we see in our code are at a much higher level. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get, to get that little error up to that level. It gets overridden by what we, what we expect to see. Or, or it's it's uh, we, we we calibrate our attention, 
when you, you read, go back to your example of reading a book, right? Actually, when you read the book, do you look at the quality of the font? Oh, this font is really good at doing A's, but it sucks at doing E's. We don't, because that's not where we calibrate our attention. But you Those can calibrate your attention. Details. You can calibrate your attention and, and go for details. The same thing when we're debugging. Our, we calibrate our attention at a pretty high level, looking for patterns of logic in our code. And then we say, but it doesn't do what it's expected to do. So now we calibrate and say, am I writing the words the, correctly? Are there typos? And, and, and that's and then, so painful, that like zooming yeah. in and out. Yes. Calibrate your attention. I like that phrase. Yeah, because we haven't, I mean, so it sounds like we haven't, we haven't created our tools as our programming tools to match the way we think because because we're we're used to accepting a whole bunch of sort of error at the noise level, right? We're used to accepting, you know, at the dots of ink on the page level, there could be lots of errors and we can safely ignore that while reading a book and understanding the narrative because they the narr- the errors are swamped by the 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 good signal and programming at least the way we've traditionally done it kind of breaks that for us mm. because suddenly an error a, a single error at that dot semicolon, level semicolon or if you're in closure and it's like is it a parenthesis or a square bracket and oh the, or anything that uses like those symbols because when you imbued so much meaning in a tiny symbol yeah suddenly something at that this low level of of, of the fractal regular has... expressions <laughs> <laughs> one Stupid backslash. Uh, how many times do I have to escape that backslash? Do I have to escape the escaping backslash? I don't know. Is it Java? Is it a string? Is it a back ticker? Double quotes, a limited string. Ah. Uh. <laughs> I so I just dropped a link into the chat, and we'll put it into the show notes. But it's a it's a an article from Cambridge, and I'm just going to read you the bolded abstract. It says, according to research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word are. The only important thing is that the first and last letter be at the right place. No word in that sentence that is more than three letters long is spelled correctly. And I just read it at full speed. Our brains are apparently really good at pattern matching, even when you get bits of the pattern wrong. So yeah, of course we can't find freaking semicolon errors. <laughs> error correction. Yeah, like, we like fill in what we expected we to see. Correction, and we just pass back up the corrected information. Hmm. There's another problem, I think, uh, and, 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 and this is that our programming tools are good at, at a certain level of that fractal universe, a certain dimension. A- anything more detailed, yeah, it's very hard for us to to find. But the higher level. The, the architectural view, the, the, the relationships between the various pieces of the software. There are some tools, but I, I, I think most of the time we, we live at the level of the text file. And, and we're at the level of the tree and we miss the forest and we can't see the leaves very well. Oh, the leaves that like grow out of the tree when it's running in an actual world system? I'm thinking of the leaves, like the semicolon leaves. Oh, okay. Okay, so you said the magic phrase, which is living at the level of the text file. And so I know at least three of us have written at least some amount of small talk on this call. Um, Mm. And so one of the things that was really different about small talk was that everything was in this unified environment where everything on the screen was 
controlled by the same language and you could jump up and down and in different levels of abstraction. You could inspect anything that you saw. How did that change the way you approached software as opposed to jumping around between a bunch of different text files? Since I, yeah, you know, I assume you've done both now. When I first encountered Smalltalk, I had an epiphany. I felt when I was traveling through the, the, the code, the way you described, the way I would feel traveling inside a cathedral. I could feel architecture. It was, it was, I could touch it. It was like listening to a, a great piece of music and, 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 and hearing uh, and, and, and perceiving the way it is constructed. The first time I had a sense of architectural beauty was with Smalltalk. And more than that, it's the first time I had the sense of there's a community here. There's a community. All the contributions are around this shared culture. There was a sense of culture, and then there was a sense of community sharing this culture, because an image is the contribution of so many different people. And, and it was so different from my experience of, of learning a programming language before that, which was you learn the primitives, you learn the idioms, you, you get a sense of how you're supposed to use, use the language with some examples, but it's all very analytical, it's all very little piecemeal, Right. And, and then you write code, but then you go into small talk and this, this, this whole thing already exists and it has this, this architecture to it and this, this sense of being immersed in the culture. And that I thought was absolutely amazing. And that's something I've, I've wanted to, to recapture as much as possible. But I think that we've, we've kind of lost that. We've kind of lost that by, by going back to, to the, the, you know, text files and IDEs are trying to, give us the sense of things coming together and, and, and the whole greater than the parts, but I don't think they're doing very well. Yeah. I feel like I grew up in the post-apocalyptic wasteland that followed that culture because I remember, <laughs> you know, cause I remember like discovering artifacts of it, you know, discovering wiki wiki and like all these, these old small talkers, you know, talking about patterns on, on wiki wiki, the original wiki. And yeah, it's just like all of these, these little bits and pieces, you know, sort of cobbling together. And then, you know, I spent a, a ton of time in the Ruby community and, and, and there was definitely, you know, a big small talk influence on that as well. And yeah, very, very much the sense of like post-apocalyptic, there used to be a civilization here. Oh, totally. And I, I, I get you. I mean, from, I call it the great, the great wasteland myself because I, I, I came, I, I came to age as a programmer in, in, in the golden age I'm, I'm, I learned APL, Prolog, Snowball, uh, Smalltalk, and there was this effervescence of, of, of ideas and, and, and paradigms. If you haven't looked at APL, please do. It, it, it is to die for. So all of this was going on. And then Smalltalk, which was just like Xerox Park for programmers, you know, all, all this, this effervescence of ideas. And, and it was truly a golden age. And Smalltalk is part of that golden age. And then came C++ and Java and corporations saying it's either one or the other. And suddenly all this richness collapsed into a, a wasteland of, 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 of programming languages. And that lasted for, for a decade and a half. And then in, with, with Ruby, we had this renaissance. And then now we have Ruby, Elixir, we have Elm, and we have this proliferation of programming languages and, and, and paradigms and, and it's now okay. It's okay to choose the best tool for, for the job because now it's not about corporate stodginess. 
It's about, you know, killing it, getting to the, the MVP as soon as possible. And you've hired this, this person who says, I can do it, but let me use Elm and Elixir and I'll get this done. And, and, and done quick. Yes, I'll do it quick. And go ahead because I don't care what you're programming into. I want something that runs and I can show to the VCs. I want something that I can move fast. So that the corporate stodginess is gone and we have this, this let a thousand flowers bloom era. And I hope it lasts as long as possible because I, I love it. That is a pretty good place to start talking about reflections. Okay, so we do a thing where each of us uh, talks about something that particularly stood out or something that they didn't get to talk about what we wanted to or, or something that they'll follow up with later. Well, the thing that stood out to me, JF, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but the thing about uh, trying not to do work. Uh, but sometimes finding ways to allow yourself to be pulled into doing work, I, I, that uh, kind of stuck with me. I like that. It works. <laughs> you know, we have basic fears. We have fear of death, fear of insignificance, sometimes fear of public speaking. But the fear of ridicule is a powerful one. So when you make a commitment, that's a strong motivator. A public commitment, it's a strong motivator. Yes. See, that's the system's thinking is to impure recognize what it's you and then arrange the system such. So a couple of things that came up for me during this talk were this idea of generating predictions and then uh, at least theoretically correcting your model when those predictions turn out not to be confirmed by sensory data, which is another way of saying that you see what you don't expect to see, which is not the way I would describe many humans. <laughs> And so I was thinking about this idea of how humans are really good at, at letting their predictions override factual or sensory data. Uh, and then you got to this other thing where you mentioned that Alan Kay talked about how he shouldn't have called it object-oriented programming. He should have called it message-oriented programming, which is something that Avdi has brought to my attention a couple of times before. And then I started thinking about computer science education and how computer science as a field really wants to be math. And the kind of people who teach computer science want to be mathematicians, and they're really looking for big ontological models and systems of classification. And so when they saw object-oriented programming, certainly the name was misleading, but they saw like these incidental features of uh, inheritance and thought, ah, that's what this is about. I can teach this and I can make myself feel smart and I can make my students suffer. Okay, maybe I'm making up that last part. But <laughs> but. <laughs> Got me thinking about how this human effect informed and changed the way we think about this foundational paradigm of, of computing. And I'm not really sure where to go with that, but that's what I got. Well, if it's okay to reflect on someone else's reflection, oh, please yeah. do. I'd like to jump off from what you just said. It so happens that one of my first jobs fresh out of, of college was to teach teachers and, and AP students Two different programming paradigms, very different. Small talk, object-oriented, and prologue, logic-oriented programming. And, and my belief at the time was, yes, learning to program uh, is a really, really good way to develop your problem-solving skills, which is why um, in Quebec we were introducing programming in high school based on, on Papert's Mindstorm ideas that it really beefs up. Uh, and, and, and instruments you uh, instruments your problem solving uh, capabilities, but I, I thought 
if you expose people to multiple paradigms of programming, if you help them look at a problem from, let's say, a, a, a conceptual object-oriented perspective and looking at problems from a logical uh, rule-based programming perspective, then the, 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 the ability to switch between these two paradigms and knowing that there are more than one, just, just knowing that there's more than one way of looking at problems would be a meta skill of, of great worth. Uh, and and uh, I, I did that work with, with the students and, and teachers, and I uh, spoke at the uh, first uh, French community conference on the didactics of computer science, and that's, that's what I proposed. And actually, it created a bit of a stink because it seemed to go against uh, received thinking that what really mattered is to learn the best possible one programming language. <laughs> oh, man. And, and for me, it's, it's like, no. So uh, multi paradigms, multiple paradigms, I think is is is, is something that's very important. And, and I'm slightly worried that a lot of software developers coming to the field are essentially just learning variations on a single paradigm. They will learn JavaScript, and, and then they will learn Ruby, uh, and, and then um, maybe Java. And, and this is object-oriented procedural thinking, but they are not exposed to functional programming. They're certainly not exposed to logic programming. And, and, and they lose the, the, the benefits of saying, of, of just knowing that there are multiple ways of looking at a problem, and I, yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's 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 really that's really important. Because if you have multiple ways of making a prediction, then it's a lot easier to accept the errors that you see in one of them. Yes, actually, you you, you will even make different predictions if you are in different paradigms. So your 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 very perception of the world will be multidimensional. Yeah, and then you can use the 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 one that makes better predictions in a given situation without being married to it. The thing that stood out the most for me was when you talked about small talk feeling like a cathedral where you could get a sense of the architectural beauty. And in particular, the meaning of beauty there for you included a sense of culture and community of depth of this small talk image has been useful to and made more useful by many, many people. I watched a talk by Eric Evans, which we'll link in the show notes the other day about uh, good design is imperfect design. And he challenges the audience to broaden your aesthetic, specifically learn to see this kind of depth, this kind of like a, a deep complex system that has been influenced by and has had value to many people. Learn to see that as beautiful. And this applies to a lot of buildings. I, I really like old cities and to look at the buildings and like Paris or Budapest and just the chips of the walls and the 18 different colors underneath. It applies to legacy software in any language, really. And I think it applies to other people that we're all different every time we step out of the shower or every time we interact with each other. And that doesn't make us easy or simple to get along with, but it does make us interesting. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking for a word to describe that. And I've I have yet to find a really good one. I think we'll have to coin one. Uh, I, all the, pretty much all the really exciting software developers I've worked with were all artists. They mm. were musicians. 
there were painters, there were poets. They all have this very strong and very developed sense of aesthetics, this sense of beauty. And Beyond just math. We can also appreciate math, but that is not the only beauty that uh, Eric in that talk also talked about how if you get the code too consistent, if it's too perfect and the names are precise everywhere, then it gets a sense of finality mm. and then you're afraid to change it. Yes. And and then you, you, you can't see those prediction errors that are coming from your actual user base. Yeah, m- math is extraordinarily beautiful, but I don't think an accountant looks at math as something very beautiful. It looks as, as something practical and doesn't look at the aesthetics of it. I'm afraid that too many programmers may be like accountants uh, and, and there are, it might be too practical. Does it do what it's supposed to do? Yes. Is it beautiful, elegant? I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah, I, either I, that I, or I find it elegant and therefore it's right, regardless of what you say it's supposed to do. Very well. Yes, that's true. <laughs> My elegance is not your elegance. JF, do you have any reflections? Well, I reflected on, on Sam's reflection, but if, if I'm given another one, I would say that what we didn't talk about is my extracurricular act, main extracurricular activity. I totally wanted to you to I totally I was hoping to ask you about Aikido. <laughs> Aikido is is one of my passions. I spend way too many hours at the dojo, and and I'm constrained by my wife who says she will not become an Aikido widow. So uh, I would spend much more time than I do right now. And I spend a lot of time. So she's, she's, I, I appreciate her forbearance. But I, Aikido informs everything I do. Uh, it's, it's the Zen cone of martial arts. It's a martial art that evacuates conflict. It's, it's a martial art where you don't have antagonism or you, you, you eliminate antagonism. There's no competition. When someone attacks... Your, your goal is to become one with the attacker so that you're, you, you move as one for a while at least and, and, and in a highly empathetic connection with your assailant. And then you protect yourself and you, you resolve the attack in a way that also protects the attacker from harm. And it, it's, it's a martial art where if you want things to happen, if you're greedy about the outcome, then the outcome is not what you want. It's self-defeating. So it's, it's, it's a martial art that really goes against ego. Your, your ego gets polished to nothing if you practice long enough. And also, to go, go back to predictive processing, a lot of Aikido is information warfare. You're essentially trying to, to hack the predictive processing mechanisms of the person attacking you you don't want to push where, or pull where you're grabbed. You don't want to uh, manipulate the person who's, who's grabbing you. Uh, you want to create no prediction errors, basically, when you're doing the technique, it, which leads to interesting situations where you, you commit to a full strike. You're attacking a master. You're committing to a full strike, a big strike over the head, moving at full speed. And then before you know it, you're flying in the air and asking yourself, how did I get here? I did not feel anything. So that, <laughs> I, 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 I just love, I love it to bits. And, and it also changes the way you deal with people. You deal with problems. You don't think of them as, you know, uh, as a conflict. 
you think it as how can I join this person's worldview and, and how can we move together in a way that's beneficial to both? So it's a very different worldview. And I think, I think it colors everything I do now. It's also where I can do some acrobatics at my, at my age and, and do great <laughs> falls and have my feet be over my head and roll on the mat and just get my yayas out. I mean, let's not get too philosophical about it either. That's beautiful. <laughs> awesome. JF, thank you so much for joining us. For thank this you. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is a lot of fun. 